Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves! Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hi, Mark Kenny here from ANU's Australian Studies Institute, and good to have you along for this Democracy Sausage Extra, or is it a second serve? Perhaps we should call it the Gourmet Edition, because we have a couple of gourmet thinkers today, both of them biographers among their many talents. Dr Chris Wallace is a historian, an author and a former top-level political journalist who, among other things, has written acclaimed biographies of figures as diverse and problematic as Jermaine Greer, Don Bradman and John Hewson. Chris is an Australian Research Council DECRA Fellow at ANU and she is, in my estimation, one of Australia's sharpest observers of politics, so I'm really chuffed to have her with us. And if that isn't enough, I'm thrilled to say hello to Alan Crawford, who is a senior editor in Bloomberg's Berlin office and specialises in international government. Alan is a gifted writer and has somehow, among his other demands, found time to write a biography of one of the world's most admired and successful political leaders, Angela Merkel. Thanks to you both for joining me. Pleasure. Hello. Alan, um, you're coming from Berlin, which is a, an interesting uh, uh, sort of place in the context of the overall uh, response to the COVID-19 crisis. In fact, in a piece you've, you've just written, you made the point that Australia and, and Germany are singled out in some of the discussions for countries that seem to have uh, handled the, the whole crisis better than most. Why do you think that is? I mean, can you can you give us a sort of a sense of of, of uh, why it is that Germany has uh, performed better than its uh, its European neighbours? Well, I think that all of that is still being worked out, and it's it's a little bit dangerous to speculate too far. But at the same time, there are certain um, uh, facets of German society that um, that lend themselves to coming through a crisis like this um, relatively well. Um, and you know, I hasten to add that we're obviously not through the crisis yet. Here, uh, we're a couple of weeks, or at least a, about a week, behind Italy and Spain. But um, certainly, um, what I find interesting is that during this whole crisis, then uh, wealthy countries, um, including the US, then it's this has really exposed um, um, deficiencies in healthcare, and so that now I was making the point that. Um, that uh, countries' responses are measured in terms of their their intensive care unit beds rather than um, you know the the size of their economy. And Germany happens to have a lot of of those specialist beds. Uh, it has 
uh, a functioning healthcare system. Um, it also it's it's helped. But you mentioned uh, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor. Then I I find personally, as a as a Scotsman living in Germany for fourteen years, she, she has a calm, uh, measured tone which helps reassure the public. Uh, certainly, that's borne out by opinion polls here, um, and. The, the political response in terms of the, the economic measures that has they unveiled a, a huge package here of a, something like 750 billion euros um, to help the economy take over during this crisis and, and hopefully recover at the other end of it. And all of that together, um, it helps reassure the public, as I was saying, but also it's um, in terms of um, the way it goes about um, its healthcare in terms of relying on uh, medical experts as the Robert Koch Institute, which is the, the big uh, virology um, centre here, then uh, they've been pushing for a lot, they've been carrying out lots and lots of testing, um, which is attributed by, again, medical experts, I don't know, but that is part of the reason why the death rate in Germany is far lower than, for example, in Spain or Italy or in the United Kingdom. So I think all of these things together, there's the, the medical uh, expertise, the reliance on experts, which of course have been shunned in, in, in some other countries, um, or at least spurned to some extent, there's the, the, the political um, gravitas uh, and the economic response together, I think even at these relatively early days, suggest that Germany may come out of this relatively um, better off than some other countries. Chris, what's your um, sort of broad assessment of uh, the Australian side of that, uh, how we've handled it? There's a bit of an emerging consensus that Scott Morrison has done reasonably well. In fact, uh, you know, Australia obviously compares well with other countries uh, in terms of the, you know, the calamities befalling them. Um, but uh, I guess Scott Morrison's also being measured against his uh, fairly catastrophic underperformance during the bushfires. What's your assessment? I think Australia fits into a, a broader pattern in the Anglophone democracies of acting uh, with a, a, a degree of uh, relaxation as the crisis unfolded that was completely unwarranted as it turned out. Um, yes, Scott Morrison, our Prime Minister, is doing a lot better on this crisis than he did with the bushfire crisis uh, over the summer of 2019-2020 um, where his performance was you know, really it's hard to describe how bad it was. Uh, let's not forget Hawaii. So by comparison with that, he's he's doing much better. However, uh, people like Bill Botel uh, from UNSW who've pointed out that warnings were being received by the Australian government early in January about the looming situation and literally nothing was done for several weeks in terms of trying to acquire and stockpile the necessary PPE equipment uh, in trying to build up the ventilator capacity and so forth and, and basically prepare for what was coming. Nothing was done. So I think when you properly account for the, that critical three months, January, February, March 2020, uh, Scott Morrison, the Morrison government, just like the Boris Johnson Tory government in Britain and like the Donald Trump Republican government in the US, were way too relaxed 
uh, way too underprepared, where basically all three of them are flirting with the herd immunity idea. Meanwhile, other countries like Singapore, South Korea, were taking this extremely seriously, acquiring the necessary material, organising to get it out there where it was needed. So I think everyone's feeling pretty good about things in Australia right now. But if you if you do an analysis, we could have done a whole lot better. Yes. Now, you've uh, recently spent a few months in the UK, so you've seen it up close there. And, of course, that's been a, a very dramatic story, both in terms of its numbers, but also in terms of this you know, very extraordinary situation where the Prime Minister himself has come down with COVID and ended up in, in ICU in a London hospital. Um, what's it like there compared to here? You've been back in Australia now for a couple of weeks. It was absolutely extraordinary, Mark. It's not often in your life that you feel like you are visibly experiencing history. And I've never, ever before in my life seen an economy visibly slow before my very eyes. Uh, the day I flew out of London, I remember I was staying in Soho. I remember leaving in a car to go to Heathrow. And it was literally like a neutron bomb had been dropped in central London. And of course, all of your listeners who know Soho will know there's no more bustling spot on the planet. There wasn't a person on the street. Every bus that went by was completely empty. Uh, all the night spots and restaurants shuttered. It was really like being in, a, in a, a strange movie. But even more extraordinary was watching week after week go by in February where the, the Johnson government basically acted like, you know, it's okay. We're going to let this roll through the community we're going to let this herd immunity build up and, yeah, you know, people will die, but, you know, in brackets, only old people and not we wealthy people. Um, that was very much the psychology. And shockingly, even the chief scientist and the chief medical officer were flirting with this herd immunity idea until quite late in the piece. And even though Donald Trump wasn't using the same terminology, the same kind of idea was current in Republican circles in Washington and latently in Australia, in the Morrison administration, again, without the same words kind of being used, the same idea was prevalent. So I think there's been a, a failure of Anglophone conservatives, specifically in this crisis, to get the science, do what was necessary when it was necessary, to prepare far enough in advance to head off what has turned out to be a bigger crisis than it needed to be in each of those three major Anglophone democracies. It's a really interesting point. I mean, the idea of Anglophone conservatives being reluctant to listen to scientific advice is uh, hardly a novel one, sadly, but uh, this is a much more urgent uh, kind of crisis than the other one that they are famous for their insouciance about. Um, Alan, let's go to uh, this piece that you've written uh, for Bloomberg in, in the last few days uh, where you talk about uh, the economic side of this crisis in particular uh, and um, you've suggested that uh, the crisis has the potential right around the world, uh, particularly in developed democracies, to change the way economies are structured, to almost you know change the fabric fabric of the political economy, and perhaps to skew it towards more of a German model. So I suppose what we're talking about here is, you know, governments becoming much more interventionist in the in the economy as they have to during the peak of this crisis as a response to try and, you know, uh, shield their economies from this enormous shock. Uh, but you're speculating really about whether some of these things may end up being permanent. Uh, can you uh, explain what you're what you're discussing there? 
at the moment, we're really seeing the return of big government in a way that we haven't seen um, in peacetime. Uh, and that's uh, in terms of the government um, introducing these lockdowns, um, curbing civil liberties uh, in, in Paris, for example. Then you've got um, police drones um, patrolling the streets. Um, and the, the, it's going to be... Uh, I would imagine it's going to be very difficult for some governments in particular to relax these measures. But but regardless of that, what we are seeing is huge government intervention in the economies. Um, and that's it's really only just that it's emerging at the moment in terms of these very large stimulus packages which have been introduced um, to try and get uh, individual economies through this, this cratered um, uh, situation at the moment. Um, but we're we're almost certainly going to see the ramifications on the other side of this in terms of how governments are are pressured to respond. Because the, on the one hand, there's the economic fallout, but where governments will be taking stakes in airlines, how do they decide which companies to save and which which to let fall? Which, which is one controversial aspect. But on there will be pressures almost certainly in terms of government policy the most obvious being then you know putting more money into healthcare uh, for example we talked about the united kingdom regardless of 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 the blame game here and you know there's a lot of criticism of the of the boris johnson government uh, it, it's conceded itself that it hasn't met targets in testing or in procuring the um this this you know PPE personal protective equipment for medical experts, but in terms of repercussions, you're almost certainly going to see pressure on the UK government to spend more on healthcare. It's it's a bit of a no brainer, but where does that money come from? And it, it would seem that in if not in the United Kingdom, that in certain countries there will be pressure to perhaps divert uh, resources away from defence and spend more on health and on welfare. And so then you start opening up a whole other um, Pandora's box, if you like, in terms of international relations and NATO defence spending and, you know, how do you actually, what kind of model do you follow? So that all of these questions are only really uh, starting to present themselves. But, the, but just to conclude this point, I think that we're undoubtedly going to see big, changes in terms of how governments work around the world after this crisis. It's a really fascinating uh, sort of historical moment, isn't it, uh, Christine Wallace, uh, because we're, uh, you know, we, we saw Boris Johnson emerge from the ICU, you know, he'd survived the COVID-19, um, uh, you know, illness. Um, he, had, he he revealed in doing so that it had been very much touch and go as to whether he survived it. He, he thanked a couple of doctors for making a couple of decisions he said that he would be grateful for for the rest of his life, um, which was different from the message we were getting uh, from his uh, press office. Um, and then he went on to talk about the you know the sacredness of the of the NHS, described it as the beating heart of Britain. Going to Alan's point about reconfiguring what what how governments have measured how you know what we want our governments to do, that's that seems to signal that even though things are going to be very difficult, uh, the IMF's talking about a very significant 
contraction for all of these economies and and uh, some of the figures for Britain are absolutely staggering. It's almost like growth dropping by a third. Um, nonetheless, uh, this is uh, this is where this is all all going and uh, you, you can imagine that it, it's, it's pretty hard to imagine Boris Johnson cutting the NHS even though money's going to be very tight after what he's been through personally. Well, of course, in the run-up to, to all of this happening in Britain, there was a great tussle between Boris Johnson and his Chancellor whom he bumped in favour of uh, a, a successor who was willing to go along with his bigger spending plan. So Boris Johnson had already set his cap to to not being a kind of a tight-ass Tory administration, but rather going into a bit of a spendathon that the more prudent minds on the Tory front bench were going to oppose. So he was already of a mind to expand. Um, but the the NHS stuff from Johnson really, you know, it kind of sticks in your craw in terms of uh, the Tories' record on health spending in Britain. You'd have to really pump a lot of money into the NHS to turn it into a system that was robust and even vaguely comparable to Australia's health system. Uh, The NHS has been run down for so long, so resource-deprived and so kind of um, riddled with the privatisation of the the, or inclusion of private operators in the profitable parts uh, of the NHS system, which is, you know, from the outside and from this distance can look like a a totally public sector entity. It's not, believe me. Um, so I think with Boris Johnson and the NHS, I'm very glad he's so grateful for them saving his life. And I really hope it translates into serious uh, extra resources for the, for the NHFs. We will have to wait and see because, as Alan says, of course, the where is the money coming from question is looming large uh, behind the scenes, just behind all the crisis manage, management we're seeing uh, foremost in the media because treasuries around the world are going, oh, my God, you know, Yes, we're in the middle of a, a, an acute medical crisis throughout the globe, but behind that is coming almost certainly an economic depression. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of comforting to think we're going to be in a recession, but really when you look at the extraordinary drops in activity uh, that we've seen over the last several weeks, it's hard to imagine we can get out of uh, a depression following what's a really awful health crisis. I mean, this is really literally unprecedented stuff. It is, and it, it's, it strikes me that uh, everyone uh, has taken some time to get their head around their heads around the uh, the gravity of all of this, including central banks. I remember being at uh, uh, at a, a press club lunch uh, with the Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe uh, a couple of months ago, where they were still at that stage talking about. I think it was a 0.2% hit from the bushfires and a possibly 0.25% hit to growth from from COVID. Uh, now, that that seems utterly fanciful, of course. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think the IMF's uh, predicting a, a 6.7% hit for Australia alone. And Australia is right at the bottom end of, uh, of uh, the, uh, the, the economic damage that is being predicted at the moment. And who knows, it could get a whole lot worse. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, talk about uh, whether there's also some wishful thinking going on on the left about economic transformation. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. One of the things that we've seen exposed through all this is the is how the sort of small government neoliberal agenda has that that market rationality model has seen manufacturing leave our shores. It's it was more rational to put it in those terms to, uh, to you know to import things that could be done more cheaply than to make them here, uh, and so we find ourselves in a situation as many countries have found themselves in this crisis. You know, without uh, without the ability to. Uh, suddenly manufacture something as basic as uh, surgical masks and gowns and so forth, which has taken a lot of gearing up, and ventilators. You know, manufacturing has been, uh, you know, on the slide here for a long time. Alan, that's quite a different story from the German story, isn't it? I mean, the German story has been one of governments working, uh, much, and, you know, outside of crisis, much more in a kind of a partnership with private industry, with sectors of the economy. Um, yes, uh, I mean Germany has still faced um, trouble over getting hold of some of the PPE um, that, uh, but it has partly because of its relationship with China, it ha- and also because it recognised this the crisis relatively early on. Certainly in comparison to the UK or the US, then it managed to source um, you know facial masks and so on. But but yes, your 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 point is valid that. That Germany has a history of um, of the state being involved in 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 private companies essentially. So that uh, it's under this system they call the social market economy, which um, which essentially was invented uh, along with modern Germany after the Second World War, um, and and is credited with with powering Germany's economic miracle that uh, brought it back to to well, to where it is now, but also, crucially, um, there are aspects of this bringing in the state to help companies and to help workers, which helped uh, Germany come out of the 2008 financial crisis in in relative good stead. So you mentioned, um, what was it, Uh, uh, keeping workers, worker keeper (laughs) programs in Australia. Job keeper, yeah. Job keeper, yeah. I'm pretty sure that that comes from the German system of, of... Kurzarbeit, which is, uh, I mean, literally means short, short-term work. But uh, what it means is that the state pays private companies to keep workers on the books, to furlough them, as the Americans say, rather than um, to um, to get rid of them. Uh, I mean, we saw that uh, I think there were something like sixteen point eight million U.S. workers um, claimed unemployment benefits in in the space of three weeks as a result of this coronavirus crisis because companies just let them go 
whereas in Germany that doesn't tend to happen to anywhere like uh, the same extent because of the system of, of keeping workers on the books. Um, and that's an, it's a good example of the social market economy in practice. Uh, they also do things like they keep um, union representatives, labour representatives, are uh, they sit on the board of, of major companies. For example, Volkswagen, then they'll have union um, representatives helping to take decisions uh, about the company's direction. So it, it tends to engender this this. This idea that the that, you know the workers are helping to steer the the, the companies to some extent, um, and I was really it, it it I find it fascinating to 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 see the level of the state involvement across the world now and to what extent that may persist after this crisis because um, um, as I said before I think there will be. A huge amount of pressure on governments to 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 alter some of their policy priorities in light of this, um, and and so yeah, I think that you know Germany to some extent offers some kind of model. I'm by not by no means saying it's a it's a panacea, but certainly more state uh, looks likely more likely than less state in the future. I, I think it's really it, it's really important here to not slide into thinking that these are to do with cultural differences between, say, Germany and Australia. Everything has a history, and Australia has had major downturns before. We've had employment creation programs before. We have had periods in our history when, in fact, the federal government has been really keen and actively marshaled cooperative behaviour between workers and between employers. For example, the Hawke Government Accord. Now, that was a very explicit positive marshalling of, for the benefit of the whole economy and the creation of more jobs for Australian workers, a sense and spirit of cooperation between the union movement, between the corporate sector and between government. I mean, policy was created together uh, during throughout the 80s to, to really transform the Australian economy. So we have done things like that before ourselves. It's just that, and again, this is something that's common to the Anglophone democracies coming from the Conservatives, uh, this idea has been inculcated for decades by the Liberal and National Parties in Australia, by the Conservative Party in Britain and by the Republican Party in the US, that somehow anything to do with the public sector is wrong, is bad, is inferior. And so Germany, you know, it's been led so capably for so long by a conservative politician in Angela Merkel, who, you know, really I think deserves the greatest admiration as a leader. Uh, so it's not necessarily intrinsic to conservatism that you have to have this anti-public sector, anti-union attitude because Merkel is a conservative who doesn't. But it is true in the, the Anglophone democracies that, the trashing of the public sector, the attacks on unions for so long have meant wherever you've had long periods of conservative governments in the US, in Britain and in Australia, the kind of cooperative, constructive cooperation that Alan's talking about in Germany now and that we've seen in the past in Australia, for example, during the Hawke government, has been obliterated. And really conservative parties, we, we need to call them to account during this period 
um, I don't know, I kind of get sick of pointing to the Merkel government as an excellent conservative government to show what can be done if everyone cooperates, uh, comparing and contrasting with the Trumps, the Johnsons and the Morrisons who historically have done everything they can to attack and undermine and rhetorically destroy anything to do with the public sector and anything to do with the union movement. That's a really interesting point, Chris. Do you think Morrison, uh, he looks to, I mean, we're looking at this in real time and that can always be a bit deceptive, but has Morrison grown through this crisis in a way that he certainly didn't during the bushfire crisis and showed no real evidence of, you know, since uh, coming to the, really to the Treasury, let alone to the to the Prime Ministership? Is it possible that he has grown through this crisis, that it, suddenly the pennies dropped and he's actually understood what leadership requires or uh, or do you think he would just revert to type? Mark, I, I sure hope so. I, I really genuinely hope so. What I fear is more likely is that he has been so terrified by the dimensions of the economic tsunami that is coming at us as a result of this crisis that he was prepared to do whatever it took to head off the worst that was coming at him. Now, I think whether how good he is or isn't isn't kind of relevant up against the drama of the official advice he would have been receiving about the economy. Any sane person would have thrown whatever they could at this problem to solve it, solve it because it is so big. And, and we still don't have a sense yet of how big it is. We, we're, we're still in kind of deep crisis mode in a health sense. But, but the people behind the scenes who are thinking are going, oh, my God, this is just gigantic. So I think Scott Morrison, whether he's learned or not, very sensibly has you know, hit the big button, not the little or medium-sized button on, on the infusion of cash, in, cash into the economy and good on him. But I think little things like uh, his behaviour in press conferences, you know, his snippiness, uh, the continuing secrecy of the government, the refusal to re- release modelling long after it was obviously would have been a good thing to, to get out into the public realm. Those keynote behaviours of his, which were writ large in a very ugly way during the bushfire crisis, they're still there. Um, and gosh, Alan, I wish we had Merkel, a, a Merkel-like conservative leader, um, someone of Merkel's stature here to run this government because I think Australian conservatives could learn an awful lot from her, her record and her administration. Alan, I might just uh, might just finish with you, Alan, on that on that question. Uh, sort of, I, I suppose, flipping the same question that I gave to Chris about Morrison to to Merkel, although a different version of it, and that is. Um, what is the status of of Merkel's leadership? Uh, you know, we, we, we've read for a long time that she's planning to step down. Although one or two people have speculated that perhaps this crisis changes that. Um, what, what's the latest thinking on where she is? Well, she has said that she won't run again for office, and she intends to serve out her full term, which ends, um, which would end uh, next year. And yes, as you say, there has been some speculation that perhaps she might uh, abandon that and seek a fifth term next year. But I think that's very unlikely for a number of reasons. First of all, that her party would be unwilling to to countenance that simply because it's just the the you know the the typical political fatigue after such a long time in office. Um, I mean, she came into office just at the uh, November two thousand and five. Um, 
So I, I would what she what she has done is that because of her crisis handling, then the the ruling parties have uh, had a very large boost in the polls. So um, you know it's still early days, and we'll see how that uh, that bears out. But more generally, what I find interesting is that that there will undoubtedly be some kind of political reckoning for these governments that have. Um, are, have been seen to perform poorly during this crisis, <clears throat> and you know they're not all um, conservative by any means. I mean, look at AMLO in Mexico, who um, who has really there's all sorts of criticism of his his. He, he came very late to the game in terms of locking down any kind of populations. He hasn't hasn't announced any kind of s- stimulus um, that's um, of any significance so far. Uh, but but beyond those, I mean, we talk about the UK. Then, it, even if you you do take it on board that the government has failed to miss its targets and so on, it's hard to see how there will be any immediate political reckoning uh, with the Labour Party, the Labour opposition in in disarray, and opinion polls showing Boris Johnson's government still well ahead, and no elections planned. More crucially, so that. I think that there could be a reckoning, as I'm saying, more in terms of um, public pressure to alter the course. And that could be, as I said, in terms of healthcare is the obvious one. But there could be things like, for example, the cities um, are all devoid of traffic, they're devoid of pollution. Will it just, will the public just accept that we go back to polluted cities? To, to a large extent, they won't have a choice, I suspect. Mm. But nevertheless, mm. these are kind of questions that I, I think there will be public pressure in various spheres that we've yet to fully appreciate. Yeah, these are really, really fascinating points, and uh, we could talk for so long. I'm sorry that we're going to have to uh, to cut it off there. Um, you know, the point you make about uh, about uh, the situation in Britain, uh, Alan, is it reminds me that I, I read somewhere just recently that Technically, and this is an astonishing fact, technically they are still in the last term of the Cameron government. That is to say that David Cameron's term, had he served it fully out, would have uh, ended, I think, in uh, May of this year. <laughs> and and we've seen all that chaos that has happened since. It's extraordinary. Um, thank you so much, Chris Wallace and Alan Crawford, for joining us on Democracy Sausage Extra. It's been really uh, great to have you along. Pleasure. Yes, a pleasure. And I hope we can do so again at some point soon because there are so many big issues we've discussed today and that none of those things are, they're all on the boil, they're all yet to be sort of clarified and resolved and, and I think there's um, so much to say about it and uh, fascinating stuff that it is. Uh, thanks to you for listening to Democracy Sausage Extra. Again, we'll be back with the uh, the regular podcast on uh, early next week, probably uh, Monday afternoon, Tuesday morning and uh, until then, bye for now. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.